Welcome to the Here and Now Motherhood podcast. Here and Now Motherhood is a nonprofit designed to support moms in their transition into motherhood. I'm your host, Nicole Hunt. Hi, everybody. This is Nicole here. I'm here with Amanda, and we're going to be talking about her motherhood journey or her experience with matrescence, which is the transition into motherhood and the first 10 years of motherhood, really. So Amanda, would you mind just introducing yourself a little bit? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I'm Amanda. I am Chicago-based. I'm the mom of a toddler currently. And um, as you'll, I'll talk a little bit more about my toddler was born through IVF and I am currently going through fertility treatments again to try to have a second child. Um, I also work as an infertility and a postpartum doula here in Chicago. Awesome. Thank you. So um, let's like go before your motherhood journey even started. What was your perception of motherhood before you ever started, you know, going down that path? Yeah. No, I think that that's such a good question. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a mom when I was 12 years old and I started babysitting. Um, I just, I've always loved kids, but I just, um, I think that something about the perception of needing to be needed um, is something that was like rooted in my childhood and my desire to be a mom. Um, I have sort of since unpacked some of the like motherhood is martyrhood um, that I grew up watching and like the sacrifices that my mom and other mothers I knew made for their children. But I think before I became a mom, I just knew that like once you had a baby, like you are their whole world and their every need relies on you. Yeah. I love that, that you kind of um, have since addressed the martyrhood piece of it. I think that's super important. Yes. That um, honestly was a big challenge for me Um, somewhere after my fourth trimester. So when my daughter was maybe like four or five months old, um, trying to figure out like who I was. And and I know I'm going to guess that we'll talk about this later, but um, sort of unpacking this space where like being a good mom doesn't mean giving up who I am or giving up the things that bring me peace or mental clarity or um, I, my identity outside of motherhood. I think that's so important. Like it's so easy to get like to like put everything else, like all other aspects of our identity, like away in a closet or something and be like, I am just a mom. And it's, I think most moms eventually figure out like that doesn't work super well. Absolutely. Like I was on Twitter and saw somebody, she had, she had, I mean, her baby is maybe like three weeks old and she changed her name to like the baby's name's mom. So like Sam's mom or what. And I was like, this is not going like, this is not a good place to like a good road to go down. No. And and I think that like, that was a really like visual way of showing like what many moms do. You know? Yeah. I remember um, when my daughter was a couple of weeks old, we had some people over. This was obviously pre-COVID life. And um, I was upstairs in her room pumping, um, which again, another story, but um, I came down and, and there were, I was just on slot with a, a questions about her and her eating and her this and her that. And 
all of a sudden I was like, hey, wait, I'm still Amanda. Like, I'm not just Brooklyn's mom. I'm not just a mother. Like, I love being a mother and I'm so grateful to be a mother. But that moment will always, like, stick out to me as one where I felt like I was not being seen as a person or as who I had been or as someone who just gave birth and was still recovering from that experience. Totally. Yeah. I um, I think that's so common of you're like, I'm still here and you just feel almost like you're invisible. Yes. And it's like, it's so sudden. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things of like, um, and like that part of one of the, I mean, matrescence is like all mixed together, all these different facets of it. But I think one of the pieces that you're kind of discussing here is like our, um, we change like what status we are in the group. Like all of a sudden you're just invisible now. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I mean, I'm so lucky that my husband and I have really strong communication. Um, and I just remember sitting down with him and saying like, I need you to see me, like not the me that gave you a daughter, not the me that is feeding our daughter or taking care of our daughter, but like who I was before I got pregnant. Like I need you to see me as a person or I'm going to break. Like I just remember Mm -hmm. having that conversation with him. Totally. And that's like how far along in your – like after the baby was born did you have that conversation? Um, I would say probably like eight to ten weeks. Mm. I mean – I feel like that's pretty admirable to like – I noticed it pretty early. early. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be completely transparent with you, I have lived with anxiety and depression um, for more than a decade. And so being really mindful of my mental health postpartum was incredibly important to me and to my husband and our communication. And so um, I think we worked really hard at like carving out time and checking in with each other um, and having sort of those hard conversations or talking about things that maybe we would have glossed over otherwise because, um, you know, I, I had a lot of risk factors for postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety and, um, navigating my identity and my feelings as I became a mother was really important in order to sort of stay ahead of those things and, and know that if, um, my mental health was struggling, like what our resources were and how I could get help. That's awesome. Um, did you know what your risk factors were before you had your baby? I did. Um, so like I said, I have been um, treated for anxiety and depression for more than a decade. Um, I have a therapist and a psychiatrist, and I've done a lot of work over the years. Um, my husband and I are also both mental health advocates uh, through a national organization called To Write Love on Her Arms and a local organization here in Chicago called Hope for the Day. And so I was extremely educated um, in terms of my risk factors, but I also knew that just knowing my risk factors wasn't going to prevent um, me from from struggling postpartum. I think it's incredible that you even knew what they were. Yeah. There's so many that so many moms I talk to that do not know what they are. Absolutely. I completely agree. So and I also think it's like that's really awesome that you're like, just knowing it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't. No. <laughs> yeah. Um well w- tell me a little bit about your journey entering motherhood and with 
IVF and I mean that whole even just the conception process was probably a very um um deep not even detailed like um there was a lot to it yes um so I live with Crohn's disease and before my husband and I got married, we sat down with um, a couple of maternal and fetal medicine specialists and asked a whole bunch of questions about um, our ability to conceive and the safety of conception and sort of what would be an ideal timeline for us. And we only got good news at that appointment and we left feeling very optimistic and feeling like, okay, well, when we're ready, we'll just try and, um, you know, month after month after month of negative pregnancy tests uh, started to chip away at me. And I reached out to my OB and I said, hey, like my cycle length is varying um, between like 32 and 39 days. Is there anything I can do to sort of hone in on when I'm ovulating and do a better job at trying to get pregnant? And she brought me in and did some blood work and and recommended that my husband go get a semen sample. And um, after that appointment, um, about two weeks later, I remember she called me and said, so you probably won't be able to get pregnant without technological help. And I was like, excuse me? Like that was not what my brain was prepared to hear. Um, and so we were sort of fast tracked with a referral to a reproductive endocrinologist. And by fast tracked, I mean, we only had to wait three months for an appointment. So, uh, that's healthcare for you in America. Um, and we went through, my husband and I went through a whole bunch of testing, um, with a reproductive endocrinologist and he saw a urologist and while his initial semen sample had shown sort of low morphology um, and low motility, we ultimately were diagnosed with unexplained infertility, which meant that there was no glaring medical reason why we hadn't been able to conceive on our own. And at this point, we'd been trying for like almost a year and a half um, every single month to conceive. And so we proceeded to do, um, we started with a, a less invasive type of reproductive technology called IUI or intrauterine insemination. And I had, we did four rounds of that and they all failed, all four of them. Um, and then we moved on to IVF or in vitro fertilization. And so um, in vitro fertilization starts with a process called stimming, where uh, my body was stimulated to produce a bunch of follicles that would become eggs. And then I went through an egg retrieval procedure. Um, my eggs were then fertilized with my husband's sperm, and we ended up with four embryos. Um, we did a fresh transfer, which meant like the embryo had not been frozen. It was just, it grew in a dish and then it was placed back in my body and that transfer failed. Um, the three embryos that we froze, we then chose to get genetically tested. Um, this, there are several varying degrees of this. And we chose just to screen for chromosomal abnormalities, which would give us the best chance of implanting an embryo that could become a baby. Um, and we did another frozen transfer in September of 2018, um, which was successful. And I gave birth to my daughter in May of 2019. So my pregnancy was fairly uneventful um, outside of the fact that I threw up every day from the day I got a positive pregnancy test until the day after I delivered her. Um, 
And then my water broke spontaneously at 35 weeks, four days, and she was here 14 hours later. Oh, wow. Did you have to spend any time in the NICU? Um, you know, we thought that we were lucky and we thought we were going to avoid that. Um, and actually at about 48 hours of life, we were almost getting discharged from the hospital and she had some respiratory distress, which routed her through the NICU. Um, and then she ended up having some um, challenges with her bilirubin levels. And so she was in the NICU for uh, just over 24 hours, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were very lucky on that respect. Mm-hmm. Well, let's like dive into like your experience with IVF a little bit because how long was that? Yeah. So um, the IVF lead up, like the anticipation and the lead up was longer, a little bit longer than the actual process that time around. Um, So we, I started medication for IVF in um, July of 2018 and then um, had my successful transfer in September and I discontinued medication in the first week of November. So that's like another thing that a lot of people don't know is that even if you have success through IVF, the injections and the medications continue until you're nine or 10 weeks pregnant. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be on those injections? Um, it was really challenging. Uh, in, in Again, in a sort of a life that's kind of hard to imagine right now, pre-COVID, um, the injections have to happen at, at very specific times and there's specific prep that has to happen for them. And so we would be like out to dinner and um, realize the restaurant we were at didn't have like a family bathroom. And so we'd have to like do them at the table in my stomach. Um, the the During the stims part, um, it was two or three injections twice a day. So once in the morning and once at night. And then... Um, from the time of retrieval or uh, transfer prep through, like I said, week nine of pregnancy, um, the shots are intramuscular and they have to go in the upper outer quadrant of your butt cheeks. And it's a really, it's like an inch and a quarter long needle. And so I found that I needed to ice before the injection. And then um, my husband would need to like really massage in the medication because it was like in oil. So I didn't get like lumps or welts under my skin. And then I would need to heat after. So the injection process for those, you know, 10 weeks or however long was um, about 45 minutes to an hour per injection. Wow. Man, so like, what was the emotional toll that IVF took on you? Um, you know, in retrospect, I think it's easier for me to see. Um, during the time that we were going through it, I just was so focused on the end goal. I was just so focused on the fact that I would do anything to become a mother. And now, in retrospect, and especially um going through this again now for a second child, um, it's completely mentally, emotionally, and physically draining. Um, the The medications have side effects, which make you feel unlike yourself um, physically and emotionally. And just the sort of sadness or the loss um, mourning that like my husband and I couldn't just like be intimate and then be surprised with a positive pregnancy test. Like that was never going to be our story. There was never going to be um, a way to surprise him and tell him I was pregnant. There was never going to be a way to surprise our families and tell them that I was pregnant. There was never going to be a surprise gender reveal. I mean, there was just a lot of like 
loss that I had to grieve in going through that process. Um, and, and some resentment, honestly, that like, this was the only way that I could become a mother, you know, that given all of the factors that we knew, it just wasn't going to happen naturally for us. Did you find yourself resenting other women or couples that could get pregnant, like in this way you're describing of just being intimate with each other? Honestly, that was um, probably like the thing I thought about the most. And it's the thing that I talk to my clients about the most these days. Um, I had to make a very distinct separation in my brain. Um, Every pregnancy announcement that I see to this day still has like a little bit of sting in it. Um, However, it also has joy for those people, um, regardless of their journey to conception and how easy or challenging it may be. And the thing that I've learned about infertility is that you don't know other people's stories. You only know what they share, what you see on social media. And, you know, so many people have had, you know, uh, challenges getting pregnant, challenges staying pregnant. They've struggled with miscarriages. This is a rainbow baby. Like you never know what other people have gone through. And I try really, really hard to let that guide my emotions and my response to um, when I see pregnancy announcements, when I have pregnant friends. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, my best friend since childhood um, basically got pregnant on her first try with her first child. And, um, repeatedly said to me, like repeatedly apologized to me. And I like at, at some point I just had to say to her, like, I'm so grateful for your sensitivity, but you didn't do anything wrong. Like, I'm really happy for you. I can't wait to be an auntie. And her showing up for me when it was hard and when I was in the thick of it, like that said more than anything else could have. And so mm-hmm. I think it's like, it's a very reciprocal and you know, some people who don't understand infertility or um, IVF, they may be shy away from friends going through those challenges. But all I would ever advise people is to show up and just say, how are you? I'm here. You're not alone. And that goes a really far away. I love that. Yeah, that was my question. I was going to ask what you would advise, like what's the best way to support someone? And I love that just showing up. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of this process can be really isolating, especially now, especially in COVID life um, where everything is kind of happening behind closed doors. And, um, you know, people really only know about our challenges when we speak up about them, which is really hard in this space. And so, um, you know, to be completely honest, I just experienced a failed transfer uh, last month and an early miscarriage and it shattered me. Um, and I chose when I was ready to be really open about it and to share it on social media, um, not only to continue to normalize the conversation and destigmatize the process of becoming a mother, but also because I needed the support. And in today's day and age, when you're not seeing people, you're not hugging people, um, I didn't know how else to ask for it. So, you know, I think that it's just, it's such an evolving process and I just really encourage everybody to, um, ask for what they need or share when they're ready because uh, this process can be really, really isolating. Yeah, I love that. It takes – and it takes a lot of courage and um, strength, I think, to like be brave enough to share that, those things and ask for what you need. Absolutely. Well, what else do you want to 
let other moms know about IVF and um, that whole process? Um, I think that so so many parts of this can be really overwhelming and really emotional. And there are things that you're forced to think through and decisions that you're forced to make that you never would have been if you had just, you know, been intimate and conceived. Um, I remember before we started IVF, we went through what our clinic called um, IVF boot camp, where we met with a bunch of providers and asked a bunch of questions and were asked a bunch of questions. And some of the things that we had to fill out paperwork for and sign were, what did we want to happen if we had embryos created and something happened to me? What could my husband do with them? If something happened to him, what could I do with them? If something happened to us both, what would we want for them? And those were decisions at that moment I was completely unprepared to make. I didn't even know they were questions I'd be asked. And so I think something that I just always really encourage people who are struggling with infertility to do before they start meeting with providers even is to talk to your partner, to talk about the things that are important to you, to talk about the sacrifices that you are and aren't willing to make, and to decide where your stop point is. You know, this is really grueling physically, emotionally, on your identity, on your marriage, on your body, on your finances. And it's okay to have a stopping point. It's okay to have a pausing point. It's okay to break and get put back together. Um, And there are resources out there. There are people like me who work as infertility doulas, infertility coaches, um, who can help sort of offload some of that emotional burden and that overwhelming and help guide you into the right path, help you to face the decisions that you're asked to make and to know and to help you hold hope. And I just recommend using your resources, using your partner or your family or your friends. Um, You don't have to do this alone. And that I believe that there is hope and that there is a happy ending, whatever that may look like. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, So let's talk a little bit about your birth. Yeah. So what was that like? Yeah. So having Crohn's disease, um, I was really adamant about my birth preferences, which our only preferences because the baby's in charge. Um, And so my sort of last choice was a cesarean section, Um, not because I have anything against them, but because if I had abdominal surgery, the chance of my Crohn's disease spreading um, was pretty high. Uh, And it just was a risk that I had preferred to avoid if possible. Um, And so my water broke spontaneously, which um, was, was very surprising. Um, I kind of had a gut feeling and I told my doula that I kind of thought that I would go into labor early, but I didn't know what that would be like. Um, And so my water broke and I called my doula. I called my doctor. um, I, took a shower and headed to the hospital. And when I went through triage, um, they confirmed that it was amniotic fluid, that I was in fact in labor. Um, And they said to me like, well, your contractions aren't like very close yet. So they gave me the steroid injection um, to help mature my daughter's lungs a little bit since I was only 35 weeks, four days pregnant. 
Um, and they said, okay, well, you know, we, if you're not like contracting consistently by morning, we'll like give you Pitocin and speed along your labor, but like you can rest tonight. Like you can eat if you want, whatever, you know, just let's, we'll keep you comfortable. And that was at like 10 PM. Um, by 1230, I was having contractions every three to four minutes. And, um, my daughter was really just on her own, uh, time frame. She was ready to just kind of barrel into the world. And so, um, I labored naturally. Um, I ended up around five o'clock in the morning. I told my doula, I thought that I needed to start pushing and sure enough, I was 10 centimeters dilated. Um, the first couple of pushes, her heart rate dropped. And so I was flipped to my hands and knees. I had the oxygen mask on and I was kind of told to pause for a minute. Um, and then I ended up pushing consistently for about two hours and she was born at 7.51 a.m. So before, I mean, we had told our parents like at 10 p.m. that like, we text them in the morning with an update that like they should plan for an afternoon or an evening birth. And then like before we even updated them, we had a baby to show them. So it was honestly very quick and um, I really had very little complaints. The only real thing that I had wanted that I didn't get was that um, I wanted to labor in the tub or in the water, but um, I needed a hospital delivery because of my Crohn's disease complications. And at my hospital, if you, if it's before 37 weeks gestation, the tub is a risk. And so I wasn't able to do that. But other than that, um, I honestly had a, a very ideal labor and delivery story. And I'm super grateful for um, my daughter's cooperation and the medical care that I received. I'm glad that the birth was such a good experience for you. Thank you. Was it empowering for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so interesting. You know, I I was kind of adamant, like, going into it. I told my husband and my doula, I was like, you know, I don't want any pictures. I don't want any video. Like, not until she's here. And within the first couple of days after delivering her, I was so mad that I didn't have pictures taken or video taken during that time because it felt really hard for me to connect to the experience. Like, it almost felt like I had watched myself do it. Um, like it was almost like an out of body experience for me, but yeah, it feels like the most badass thing I've ever done. I agree. When I like giving birth to my son was like the coolest thing I've ever done. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then you were, you'd mentioned before that she spent 24 hours in the NICU. Yes. So um, we had, we had a very chill, like first two days. So she was born on a Thursday morning and like, Thursday, Friday, totally chill. Um, my milk hadn't come in yet and she was struggling to latch because she had a really small mouth. And so, um, you know, we were doing a little bit of classroom feeding with a syringe and then a little bit of formula feeding with a bottle. And, um, you know, she did the car seat test and we were honestly getting ready to be discharged Saturday morning. And, um, she started having some challenges breathing. And so she was immediately routed to the NICU. And I just remember looking at the NICU nurse and saying like, is this where the other shoe drops? Like having gone through IVF and, and infertility, I think I sort of was conditioned to just like wait for the next like catastrophe, I guess, or the next like 
challenge that I was going to have to overcome. And I was so scared and so emotional that like that was going to be the moment that I was told that like she wasn't perfect or that she, you know, something was wrong and that so like our lives were going to just be changed forever. And the nurse assured me that she didn't think it was that kind of situation. Um, my daughter ended up not needing intervention for breathing. She was monitored. She did end up going under um, the lights for jaundice um, for her bilirubin levels. And I had been discharged from the hospital. And that was really challenging because there is not really a place for NICU parents to go at that point. Um, we lived about an hour from the hospital that we delivered at, and I was not going to leave my three-day-old alone. Um, and so we kind of just like shuffled through the hallways. And I remember like carrying my duffel bag that had like, you know, the peri bottle and the ice packs and the pads and, um, all the parts to pump. And I was, you know, going into her NICU room every two hours to pump and then to bottle feed her the breast milk. And it just felt like this, oh my God, this exhausting haze where we were just kind of like shuffling around waiting to see like what the next information was going to bring. And so when she was finally discharged, she was actually discharged on Mother's Day. Um, and my birthday was the following day. So it was like a whole just like whirlwind. Um, I just remember getting home and knowing that we had to be at the pediatrician the next morning. And I just like, I feel like I've never felt so tired in my life. That's yeah. I was gonna say that sounds exhausting. Yes, I would agree. I mean, because, I mean, even just you shuffling through the hospital room, I'm like, oh, I just want her to sit down because, like, right. you just had a baby, yeah. you know? Yeah, but like outside of the one chair in her NICU room, like there wasn't really a designated space for us, and we finally were able, we got permission to stay in an on-call room off the NICU ward. But the conditions were that we couldn't be let in the room until 11 p.m. We had to be out of the room by 7 a.m. And we had to be in her room at every feeding. That was the only way that we could even be permitted to, like, stay there and leave our stuff there. So it was, like, not super welcoming for new parents. Yeah, that sounds very, like, cold and harsh. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. That makes me sad that that – I don't know what other hospitals do in that situation, but that makes me sad that you had to do that. I don't either, but I also just, again, thank my lucky stars that it was it was a very short stay compared to other parents and other child children's journeys. And I just have always tried to keep that in perspective, that it was a really hard period for us, but that it, it ended, thankfully. And, you know, I just have tried to move on from that space. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think this kind of touches on like um, like another aspect of matrescence of like having multiple feelings at the same time. Oh, that yeah. That sometimes compete with each other. And that can be like really challenging or just new to navigate as a mom. Absolutely. Um, I remember feeling like all of a sudden when she was – you know, taken to the NICU. And like, I mean, we had just done basically 48 hours of skin to skin and, and snuggles and um, just kind of fawning over her. And when she was taken to the NICU and she was in her little isolate, um, I just, I looked at my husband and I said, okay, well, this is what it feels like when your heart lives outside your body now. And it was just like a very real moment where I felt so overwhelmingly protective over her and scared over her safety. And then also like 
not not even thinking about but needing to recognize like my own limitations having just vaginally delivered a child and trying to pump every two hours and just I mean there were so many components physically that like just emotionally depleted me very quickly totally well let's talk a little bit about what it was like after you guys left the hospital yeah um, so I always tell people this and I don't know if it should make me laugh or cry, but, um, so we, we had moved into a new house two weeks before my water broke. Um, I thought we had a good six weeks or so to move in and settle, but we did not. Um, so we like weren't even unpacked when we came home from the hospital with our daughter and we, we had just bought this really nice new bed, um, this like sleep number bed for our bedroom. And for 10 weeks, my husband and I slept on the couch um, in our living room with the baby in the pack and play, uh, obviously in a flat surface on our back, of course. But it was so overwhelming to like become parents and figure this out that like we didn't even we couldn't even figure out a routine to like move up to our bedroom and move her to our bedroom to her bassinet because like I was pumping and we were also supplementing with formula and we were taking shifts. So like, you know, we'd take three hour shifts and then switch so the other person could rest. But when you're pumping, like you don't get any longer than the stretch between your pumps. Like it it, it just, it was a bore. It was a bore of exhaustion. And I remember the thing that really got me is I remember feeling so resentful that I would sit when I was pumping and be writing thank you notes to people who had sent things for my daughter or for us. Um, this like perceived responsibility that I was like so vulnerable and trying to keep alive a new baby and trying to recover and trying to do all these things and yet I was taking like any free time and mental energy I had to like thank other people for showing up. And that's like something I would never make myself do again. Um, that pressure just felt inherent. It felt like the like responsible kind thing to do, but it just, it weighed on me so heavy. And that like the first trimester, I'm sorry, the fourth trimester, the first 12 weeks after I delivered, it was real it was honestly just a blur. And I remember when we kind of came out of that blur, I said to my husband, like, I want to do it again now that I know better. Like now that I'm, I know, like, you know, there was just, there's so much you're not expecting or you're unprepared for as a first time parent. Like from, you know, figuring out what swaddle works for your baby to figuring out what sound machine works to figuring out a feeding schedule, like just all these little pieces that like I had never thought about before because I'd never had any need to. Like I just, I wanted to do it again in a space that maybe I could have enjoyed it more or soaked it up more because I was better educated or prepared. But I feel like that's probably what every first time parent says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, yeah, it's so it's just so much. Yes. Know? Absolutely. And and like I'm sure as a postpartum doula, you want to like educate people as much as you can like before that happens. There's also some level of like you have to just be in it to get it. Yep. Absolutely. And that's like always the the thing I encourage new parents the most when I show up for a shift as a postpartum doula is like, what do you want to talk about? 
what do you need? And then what can I do so you can rest or shower or eat a hot meal or take a nap? Like that is Mm -hmm. so undervalued. And, you know, I, I have seen also as a mom and as a doula that, you know, most people when they show up to visit a new baby, bring something for the baby. Guess what? The baby doesn't need anything. The parents don't need anything for the baby. And the baby's not going to know you brought anything. Bring something for the parents, whether it's coffee or food or snacks or a new pillow or a blanket. Like, I just, you know, I think that it goes a really long way to see new parents and not just the parent who gave birth, but both parents or both partners. Um, I think that they're so under seen and underappreciated when they just, you know, uh, did this huge thing and brought literally a new human into the world. And so, yes, I, my biggest encouragement is like, how can I help new parents to take care of themselves? Because taking care of the baby is the easier part, honestly. Totally. I mean, it's such an intense transition for parents that, um, yeah, I mean, and I'm sure that's part of the reason why you're a postpartum doula because it's just – it's so intense. Yes, it absolutely. And that was like the biggest thing that I, you know, spent time thinking about before I transitioned into being a doula. Hold on. <coughs> I'm sorry. Was that I thought – I read all the books. I did all the classes. I prepared for motherhood as much as I could and yet – postpartum life smacked me in the face because nobody talked about it. And I was, I have a lot of mom friends who were mom friends before I was a mom, but like, I didn't know if like, honestly, as ridiculous as this sounds, I didn't know that I was going to bleed for four or five weeks after I had a baby, like just had no idea. So like, that is really annoying to me that I didn't know that. And that I didn't know a lot of things about what was going to happen to my body physically and emotionally and my life and my sanity. And so, yeah, that is ultimately what led me to become a doula was that I wanted to better support new families as they walked through that transition in their own lives. Yeah. I mean, and that that is a huge thing of like bleeding for that long and yes. just not even knowing that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was wild. What were some of the other surprising physical changes you experienced? Um, I did not have any concept of how hard it is to breastfeed or feed your baby. Um, so we, for a variety of reasons, um, I triple fed for seven weeks. So that meant that I nursed my daughter at the breast, I pumped breast milk and then fed her breast milk with a bottle, um, and also supplemented with formula based on my supply. Um, but the demands of that, the schedule, the rigidity. Um, I ended up becoming an exclusive pumping mom after those seven weeks, which I hated to be completely honest with you. Um, I really, I was grateful to be able to give my daughter breast milk, but I hated pumping and the amount that it ruled my life and where I could go, how long I could be gone, what clothes I needed to wear. Um, you know, clothes, a lot of clothes are made for nursing and they're cute and they're functional, but clothes for pumping when you have flanges and you're trying to be discreet, um, very difficult, very limited choices. And so that was a huge challenge for me. Um, 
I honestly had no idea what intimacy was going to be like postpartum. Um, and that's something that I feel like really should be talked about much more than it is. Um, and just like the feelings of, oh, wow, not only is there like no day off, there's like no hour off. Like, you know, I think it's just really hard to understand what life of a baby or a newborn is like until you have done it because I loved everything about my daughter and I loved most of everything about being a mom, but I wanted time to myself. Like I definitely reached that touched out point or that like feeling out point. And like the only thing you can do is ask your partner or, you know, your someone that you trust to take over so you can have a breather, but then you also feel guilty on that breather that you're not with your child. So I think these are all just so many pieces that impacted me. Totally. And like that piece of like, I'm a better mom when I get a break, but I feel bad when I get a break. You know, it's like, it's so complicated to have all of those feelings all at the same time and absolutely and you're like how do I even navigate this who do I ask about this especially right. like I mentioned that your other friends like didn't um mention a lot of these things no not at all yeah so you're like well maybe I'm not supposed to talk about this then honestly thank god for my doula um so I had a delivery doula who is still someone that like is an integral mentor in my motherhood journey. Um, she is just really, really incredible and has made herself available for questions and thought processes. And, um, I remember texting her. I was so mad because I was triple feeding at this point still. And my first postpartum period was at seven and a half weeks postpartum. And I had bled until almost five weeks postpartum. So I was pissed when that happened. And I remember being at Target texting her being like, um, are you joking me? And she was like, oh my God. Like she was just so empathetic and also told me that that can happen and it's normal. And like, just, I mean, thank goodness for her. Um, I did end up having some postpartum doula support. Um, I waited too long. Like I would advise new parents to have postpartum doula support available right at the beginning. I did not know if I wanted someone else to be with my baby. Um, and I, it took me like five or six weeks to um, bring in a postpartum doula. And I'm so glad I did. And she was with us for several months on and off, um, especially at night. But I just had such an intimate relationship with my delivery doula that she was really the person that I went to for a lot of that stuff. But yeah, I mean, if you don't have a doula or a mom or aunt or sister or friend, like, I don't know who you ask those questions to. I love that you had um, doulas that you could talk to about that sort of thing, especially because they're educated on the topic. Yes. And that's like a big piece of it because even if you open up to somebody, they're, they're probably not a maternal health specialist. Correct. Anyway, you know. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you had that and that you eventually got a postpartum doula. I mean, I wish that every mom could have a postpartum yes. doula. Yes. Like yes. 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 I I tell people now and they're like, "Oh, my friend is having a baby. What should I get her?" And I was like, "Get her a package for doula hours." Like, oh, totally. 
totally. That's literally the best thing that you could offer anyone. No one needs any more swaddle blankets or pacifiers or cute bows for their daughter's hair. Like, get them postpartum doula support because that is the thing that they're going to be literally dying for when they are new parents, sleep deprived, you know, exhausted, starving, feeling just all the emotions, like someone who is educated and trained to support the whole family, not just the new baby um, is so pivotal. And that that piece there, I think is really important too, because I feel like a lot of maternal health can wind up being like baby centered. Correct. And um, like considering the mom baby or the parent baby dyad, you know, is really important, I think, in looking at both pieces of that. Absolutely. And I think that that's something um, often misunderstood when talking about doulas and doula support, um, especially postpartum, is that doulas are not nannies, they're not night nurses. Um, They are someone who who is extremely educated, not only in in helping you to navigate the transition into parenthood, but supporting the parent-child bond, supporting the parent-child caretaker. Um, one of my favorite things that I've done as a postpartum doula is um, actually like serve as a dad doula. And so um, new dads who sort of um, don't get the training or the space to ask questions comfortably. A lot of times um, I'll have like if mom is feeding during the night or mom is pumping or when mom is asleep, um, dad will or the the non-birthing parent will ask me, um, you know, can you show me the best way to swaddle the baby or can you show me how to soothe them or can you show me how to warm up the milk just right or like all of these questions because they want so badly to be engaged, but it's also like dads aren't talk or non-birthing parents aren't talking to each other about this um, very often. And so just the the thing that I wish more people knew was that doulas are for family support. They're there to support your big kids when you bring home little babies. They're to support big siblings as they transition into that role. They're to help the pet get used to the baby. I mean, they're just there's so many ways in which a doula is meant to support the entire family. And I think that um, if more people knew that, they'd be able to better utilize that support and have easier transitions into parenthood. Totally. Totally. What was your husband's experience like after bringing the baby home from the hospital? Um, he says that in the beginning there was a lot more like – I don't know how to phrase this. I guess there was a lot more downtime in which the baby would be asleep on top of him, but like – mentally he needed to engage somehow and so like he picked some shows to rewatch on tv and he listened to some audiobooks um but he was i think really captivated with um how much he wanted to do for her and yet how much her body still relied on mine and that was a constant sort of give and take um i also had my husband luckily is is um very good at sort of articulating his feelings, which is really important and very important to our relationship. But, um, you know, we had a, like I said, a get together a couple weeks after our daughter came home and um, his parents could come in from out of town. My parents were here. um, Some of our friends were here. And um, every woman in the room was sort of giving him unsolicited instruction. And he felt like emasculated by it because he was like, this is my daughter. I have been with her every second of her life 
you know, in the last three weeks or however long since she's been here. And just because I'm a man doesn't mean I don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. It doesn't mean I don't know how to change her diaper or swaddle her or rock her or feed her. Like just all of these things. And that kind of continued her first couple of months of life, especially honestly with like my mom and my grandmother, um, you know, meaning well would give him suggestions or criticism or feedback when they were watching him with the baby. And it was like, he, it, that's not necessary. He doesn't need any of that. Like, so that was really interesting to see from his perspective that like, just because he is a dad, he is a non-birthing parent. Like, he was automatically assumed to know less or like to be less valuable to the baby, um, which is really infuriating. And my husband was really adamant from the day before, like from right after we brought my daughter home, um, my, he has always had his own diaper bag. So he has a diaper bag and I have a diaper bag and we independently keep them stocked. And when we take her out places, even to this day, she'll be 18 months old in a couple of weeks. Um, when he takes her, he takes his bag. And when I take her, I take my bag. And that way we know we have what we need and we know where stuff is. And it just sort of shows like that sense of independency. I mean, honestly, he was taking her places alone before I was because he didn't have to worry about like the pumping and all those things. Like he could just take a couple of bottles and go. Um, and so he'd do that often so I could have some quiet time or so he could get out of the house and have some sanity. But he was so comfortable taking her places and I loved that. And so I think that that's um, – it's really important that non-birthing parents don't get kind of written off as like the less dominant parent just because they didn't give birth. Totally. Yeah. I love that. And I love how you guys navigated that of um, like each having your own diaper bags and him, it kind of sounds like him standing up for himself and being like, yeah, I know how to do this. Yes. Yes. Which I think is like very intimidating, especially in some of those situations. But I think it's so, so important for for parents' confidence and for parents' voices that they stand up for themselves. Totally. Um, you mentioned one thing, and I think it's common for new parents is like being exhausted and yet bored at the same time. Yes. Yes. And I think like that's something I didn't expect about especially early postpartum, but I think it's, I think it lasts quite a while. Like even yeah. if you have a year old, you can be exhausted and bored at the same time. A hundred percent. Um, we actually like, we're very, um, strategic, I guess about it once we sort of recognized that that was what was happening. And we both, my husband and I both picked, um, shows that we had already watched to re-binge from the beginning, but different shows. So like when, he was watching his own thing and I was watching my own thing because it was something where like it's on, but you're also familiar with it. So if you doze off or if you answer the phone or if the baby needs something, it doesn't matter that you're missing 10, 20, 30 minutes, but also you can focus on it. You can reconnect with it. And that like felt like the best option for both of us was to like rewatch something we already new um, and we're already comfortable with, but that we could stay engaged in because yeah, there was so much time of like exhaustion and also boredom, especially for me, I would notice when I was pumping um, or like staying awake between feedings during the night that I needed something where like if I dozed off, it was, you know, I wasn't going to miss anything, but like I had something to pay attention to. Totally. I love that. Um, one thing I'm curious about, what was your experience like with mental health 
um, after the baby was born? Yeah. So I saw my therapist two weeks postpartum. Um, so I, at the time that my daughter was born, I had been with my same therapist for more than six years. So we had a very long standing history and, um, brought my baby to therapy at two weeks postpartum. Um, I always tell people she started early. And um, my husband also at the time was seeing a, a therapist in the same practice. And so we scheduled appointments at the same time, like every couple of weeks postpartum, and we'd just bring the baby to the office and we'd alternate who had her in their session. Um, but I was mindful. So I'm on an antidepressant. I was during my pregnancy and I was mindful that that dose may need to increase postpartum. Um, it did not, I did not choose to increase it postpartum, but I was mindful that that was an option and something that might be necessary. Um, but really for me, um, articulating everything that I was thinking and feeling postpartum was so, so important in order to manage my mental health and make sure that my depression and my anxiety weren't increasing based on the postpartum hormones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great that you had, um, your therapist all lined up ahead of time. Did they have perinatal mood and anxiety disorder training or was it just somebody that you clicked well with? Or? Um, no, she didn't, to be honest with you. It's just someone that I had clicked well with. Um, honestly, it's someone who also has Crohn's disease. And so that had brought us together and given us a foundation several years beforehand. Um, so no, she did not have any special perinatal training, but she knew me really well. And I felt like if there was something of concern, um, she would have known who to bring it to or sort of how to refer me to a more intense specialist. I think that's great because there's a lot of different factors when you're choosing a therapist that's right for you and um, they're different for everybody. Absolutely. So I'm glad that you like had someone like that you could lean on that knew you ahead of time. Yeah, I consider myself very, very lucky. Um, so you had mentioned at the beginning about like kind of overcoming the concept that martyrhood is a piece of motherhood. Yeah. And, um, I mean, did, did that play into your, um, choice to do exclusive pumping or anything with feeding the baby? Cause I know that a lot of times it can, it can. I'm just curious if it was for you. Um, that piece did not. Uh, choosing to exclusively pump was because nursing was not going to work for us. Um, we saw several lactation consultants and um, we. my daughter struggled to latch. Um, she would only latch with a nipple shield and then she wasn't transferring very well. Um, and she would, she could spend an hour on the breast and then still not be full because she wasn't getting enough milk. And so, um, I was not ready to give up providing her breast milk, um, which made me transition to exclusive pumping. But, um, honestly, I wanted to quit more times than I can tell you. And I actually started to wean at one point and then felt like the weaning hormones made me feel, um, almost, I guess, sentimental that like I, I wasn't quite ready for that part of the journey to be over or to stop giving her breast milk. And so I sort of amped back up my pumping schedule until I was really ready to wean. But um, I think the the concept of motherhood not being martyrdom um, is more in the, and it continues on, honestly. But I think it's more in terms of now, like trying to make sure that 
when there is downtime, when she is taking a nap or she's asleep for the night, that I am not just, um, you know, cleaning the house, doing the dishes, getting things ready for the next day, that I'm actually um, checking in with myself, doing things that make me feel good, practicing self-care. Um, and I think that that's a continual battle for me, even though I'm 18 months into parenthood almost. Yeah, totally. That totally makes sense. And thanks for sharing like your perspective on feeding your baby. Cause one thing I didn't expect was how emotional it is. Oh my God. Yeah. It's incredibly emotional. Absolutely. So many pieces of that. Like, like I remember when like my psychiatrist was like, well, like, cause he was kind of addressing this like really emotional part of me feeding my baby. And he's like, well, what if your milk just dried up? And I just like burst into tears and I was like, I wouldn't be able to handle that. And I think, so I think that's one of the like um, aspects of like the intensity of emotions during matrescence. That's like important. Um, What are some other things about your journey um, with matrescence and motherhood that you'd like to share? Um. I think that's a good question. I'm, I don't know that there's really a lot that you haven't already asked me about. I mean, I just, I can't stress enough what a continual evolving transition this has been. And I can tell you that 18 months in, I'm not any closer to being done with that transition or being like solid in my um, feelings and perception of motherhood than I was when this started. Hmm. Yeah. Well, what kind of advice do you, would you like to share with other moms or parents listening? Um, trust your gut, communicate, utilize your support system, whether that's your partner or like I said, your family, your doula, your friends. Um, it takes a village to raise a child, but it also takes a village to become a parent. And I think that that is way underutilized. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Um, and since you are a doula of various sorts, w- do you want to share your information so people can get a hold of you if, if they'd like to? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my doula company is called Heartfelt Beginnings. So you can find me on Instagram at Heartfelt Beginnings, one word. Same with Facebook. And um, Nicole, I'll give you um, the links that you can put in the show notes. But um, if you search for Amanda Osowski at Heartfelt Beginnings, you can find me and um, all the ways to contact me. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate you sharing your story. You're welcome. Thank you. Until next time, this has been the Here and Now Motherhood Podcast. 